Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm sat around the table with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Mr. Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today is Mr. Gary Kemp. Hello, Gary. Hello, Barney. It's, it's more <laughs> nerve-wracking being on this side of a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> than being in charge. <laughs> Do you, want, do you want to basically become the host? Well, there? although sometimes, you know, when someone like John Bon Jovi suddenly appears on your computer screen in front of you, it can be a bit disconcerting at first. Yes, yes. Well, we'll, we'll be talking about your wonderful yeah. Rock on Turs podcast that you do with Guy Pratt, Mr. Guy Pratt, later. Why am I turning into Mr. Porter, Nessa Porter? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming into Hammersmith to talk about your career and your musical passions and we'll be discussing new romanticism and pink floyd and david crosby and as i say your own excellent podcast rock on tours but let's start with your you know your earliest sort of musical epiphanies as a kid growing up in north london was there a pop moment that sort of changed your life yeah i'm you know i mean this is this has been wheeled out a lot over the years and a lot by other artists too and it's it's you know probably bowie doing starman on top of the pops was was such a key thing for me and i did see it in black and white i saw it in a friend's bedroom on a tiny tv that was on a cupboard was a high wardrobe i remember looking up at it which is probably right the right way to look at bowie. <laughs> and and how i felt i'm kneeling on the floor and you know that moment when he when he points his finger down the barrel of the lens and says i had to phone someone so i picked on you i had to phone someone so i picked on and of course, it, it was me and yeah. <laughs> millions of other kids who saw it at the same time. I don't know why it was so extraordinary. I think the homoerotica yep. element of it, when he drapes his, his painted fingernails around the shoulders of Mr. Mick Ronson, <laughs> was, had a certain frisson about it. I think the short hair, the short spiky hair. Mm. and actually he was a wearing. mullet. He's actually yeah. a mullet. Yeah, a mullet. A mullet. Well, that's, coming, that's coming from a man who's written a book about mullets. So. <laughs> Yeah, do you, do the you know the, the mullet was actually... Now, remind me, who was the girlfriend? Marie Helvin was on the front of a magazine. Nova, I want to say, what is that magazine? Yeah, no, there was a great Nova. magazine. Right? Yeah, Nova, yeah. And she wore a Japanese kabuki wig. And Bowie saw that and he said to his hairdresser, and that could be Mick Ronson's wife... Sue, Susie Fossey, 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 Fossey right, right, I got right. That right. and he said, "That's the that I like my hair like that. Yeah. Cut my hair like that." Yeah. So it was based on a Japanese kabuki wig. Anyway, but we you it's in your book, I'm sure, if you've done a book on I did mullets. a little book on glam and book on mullets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're glam and uh, mullets coincide. Uh, yeah, and, uh, so that you know was was you know I remember walking home that that evening, really feeling changed because i think he was this sort of slight bisexuality of him and of course he did the famous enemy interview didn't he gave me something dangerous to present to my parents probably because long hair was fairly dull by then it had been, been going on for quite a while and um, i remember my dad being very angry about the rolling stones when my dad was a printer in a factory but he wore a tie every day to go to work and and i remember some reason talking about Beatles or the Rolling Stones when I was must have been about seven years old on the stairwell and with my dad at the house and saying I like the Rolling Stones he said you can't like the Rolling Stones you have to like the Beatles <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> this is fight. obviously before the Beatles it. started taking drugs <laughs> publicly. <laughs> and I could, and Mark Boland almost, you know, was pretty much my first proper single, Hot Love, and watching him. And of course, he beat Bowie to to glam, didn't he? He beat Bowie to the glitter, and he when he wore the glitter on his cheeks. Now yes. remind me who they were at a party, weren't they, Bowie and Boland? And somebody, some woman put Chalita, Chalita. Tony Secunda's wife, sprink- the- in a moment of spontaneity, sprinkled a bit of, glued a bit of glitter yeah. to his cheeks. I think it was before Hot Love, before they, yeah, before it was before T-Rex he did. played Hot Love on the Pops. It yeah. was. And that was, so, and it, that was sort of the birth of... The birth of, of glitter, glitter rock. <laughs> yeah, glitter. Glitter yeah, rock, yeah, yeah. which is glam. And of course, then there's, it's all tied in with those shops, you know, Mr. Freedom and wherever mm. they got their, you know, their, 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 their gear. So it was glam rock, yeah, and it was Roxy Music. And mm. it was, and I suppose that was my benchmark and was what we, all of my generation, referred to post-punk when it was our turn to get into doing our own thing um in the meantime before then i did go via prog rock i did go via genesis actually you know when you think about it you know peter gabriel dressed like a flower or a fox isn't far away from glam rock it's all theater right i mean supper's ready was one of my one of my great the great records you know i'd lie on the floor and listen to supper's ready one day and another day i'd lie on the floor in the dark listening to time you know equally yeah. as theatrical yes uh, off of a lad insane album with, uh, with expensive headphones uh, no just no. With, with, with my stereo turned up if my okay. mum and dad had gone out right. <laughs> uh, i don't think i had any headphones then but it was you know so via pink floyd and all of those you know whatever it was you know and of course punk and then when it came to the new romantic idea or whatever it, be, what it be got called new romantic, we'll discuss that. It was, you know, glam was every, Bowie was everybody's reference point. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, before we started, we were talking about how the, the massive age difference three or four years is when you're 17, 16, whatever. And I was kind of slightly too old for, too old for, for, glam. for, for glam. You know, I mean, I loved, Ellen, I mean, I did love Bowie and I did love Mark Bolan. But it wasn't my tribe, you know. It was very much your yeah. tribe. Well, I tell yeah. you what it is, and it's a pubescent boy, mm-hmm. yes. and I felt it in my loins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure you yeah. want to hear I about think... what you've <laughs> <laughs> I do think this is it's it. It's a family show. Yes. <laughs> but I do think this is it. And that's, that's, that whatever music affects you at that age, yeah, yeah. 13... Yeah, yeah, is is some is entwined with sexuality yes. and, uh, and 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 Bowie was he was genius at that and of course Bowie had this great charisma didn't he because he could charm record companies into you know once they dropped him for not selling records he'd charm another one into yeah. signing him and yeah, another yeah, one yeah. in signing. Him. Out of interest, I mean, what was your relationship with black music as a teenager? Tamla Motown right. would have been some of the singles I bought, yeah, you yeah. know, like it would have been Stone Love or yeah. Four Tops would have been in there. I mean, you know, there would have been those kind of early records. If and The I'm, reason I ask is that, that your band's roots were heavily in yeah. black music. I think black music, for me, probably dance music came a bit later, right. so that would have been... 
77, sure. 78, yeah. you know, there was a, a record shop called Contempos, yeah. which yeah. was just off of Oxford Street and Hallam Street. Uh, where, funnily enough, we, we we did some of our first rehearsals as Blues a band. And Soul, Blues and Soul was above it, yeah. John yeah. Abbey and, and on a Saturday, yeah. you know, when I wasn't doing my Saturday job to earn some money or, you know, or a day off, you know, kids would go to that shop, dress up, go to well, the shop, stand outside because mm-hmm. it was packed inside, listening to the one or two copies they had of some import. Right, yes. And take, you know, me, me, I want to buy that, I want to buy that. <laughs> you know, coming home with do what you want to do or something, right, you yeah. know. That was, yeah, yeah. That was... Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Casablanca yeah. label or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you obviously talk about Bowie, and my experience is exactly the same. Top of the Pops, Bowie and Bolan, and so forth. That opened like the floodgates to all of it for me. But would it be, I mean, people obviously talk about Blitz all the time now. It's sort of enshrined in kind of popular it's culture. It's funny because my parents had a Blitz. I was going to ask you about Billy's because Billy's yeah. doesn't get so much attention. Yeah, yeah. W- would it be fair to say that what we, you know, we'll come on to discuss as, you know, the new romantic cult with no name, etc. Really, the, the the roots of that were in the Bowie Nights at, yeah. at Billy's. That's yeah. sort of where it all. Yeah. Well, I had an old, from. I had an older friend, Steve Dagger, who yes. was managing us as a as a band, you know, and you know he was the one who first showed me the flyer to go to Screen on the Green to, and we were, when I was sixteen and we saw the Sex Pistols. Play. Yes. You know that definitely changed everything for me. But then then he was the one who who appeared with the flyer, mm-hmm. saying, and the flyer said something like. Jump aboard the night train, Billy's Bowie night, and it was a Tuesday. And and I remember going to this place, and he said, "You know, you want to wear some something something cool, you know." And so I was. We were. We used to buy clothes, soul boy clothes from yes. from Woodhouse at that time, and uh, you know, like a waistcoat or something. Yeah. We went to Soho, and I remember seeing this Cossack with a quiff. <laughs> An uh, actual Cossack. Well, it was, it was Steve Strange. He had it a Welsh was Steve accent. Strange, right? <laughs> yeah, and and, and uh, standing outside the door of this club, just in Soho somewhere, and a little Mead Street. This club, by the way, was the once the Gargoyle Club, where which was an old cow was. Downstairs hunt. in the basement. It was in the basement. basement yeah. yeah, it's now the kitchens of. Soho house, yes. like everything else is. I think my house is <laughs> yeah. virtually going to be. We're actually sitting in. Eventually, the we will all be part of Soho. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I remember him. We queued up, and I was quite scared. And he looked at me, and he went, oh, "You know." It was one of those moments. <laughs> with, would you let you in? But yeah. he didn't. So he was the doorman at Billy's as well. He was the doorman at Billy's. Right. You know, he was a, well. Basically, what it was is Billy's is on is a club on its uppers, not doing very well. Just prostitutes hanging out there, and and worst night of the week if it was possible, was a Tuesday. Yeah. And and so the, the Steve Strange and Rusty Egan, this 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 Cockney lad who, who'd just been to Berlin on a kind of like a party trip and had brought back all of this electronica with him, all these records, exactly. Kraftwerk and yeah. Nina Hagen, or X or whatever it might be, you know, and like Dusseldorf. He was DJ. He was the DJ. It was a Bowie night, so basically it was anything that Bowie validated. So it would be, you know, Iggy Pop would be in there, right. Reed would be in there. There was a few things happening at that time. Don't forget, there was Mute Records, so there'll be Warm Leatherette was Leatherette. definitely on yep. the... And of course, the, the early Human League, you know, which, you know, they're being, being, boiled. being boiled. I don't, I couldn't put an exact date whether that was out at that time, but I'm guessing. Mm. And anyway, it was three quid to get in, and I managed to get past this Cossack with Diamante brooches and... <laughs> 
have you, God knows where he got his kit from. And you know, there was a little shop called PX just in Covent Garden, which yeah. was 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 selling sort of like one-offs yeah. that was sort of semi-sci-fi. So you either look like Dan Dare or a Cossack. <laughs> you know, that was kind of. And there was soul boys down there with their wedge haircuts. So it was a very arty place, and I remember going down these stairs with a throb of electronica coming out of it, and and Rusty in a D mob kind of sort fifties suit with love and hate tattooed on his hands, and and there were these two boys dancing the slow motion jive together, wow. and it was it was it was incredible, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. It, it had a sort of I tell you what the, the other thing that people don't mention there were two big important films that that had arrived there was Cabaret and there was also uh, the Night Porter you know and there was this kind of frisson you know messing that, about with mm-hmm. this kind of Weimar yeah, Republic yeah. imagery yeah. it was also later on there'd, there'd be uh, Brideshead Revisited yeah, you know yeah. which, which seemed to kind of encourage a lot of different a, a certain 80s look and a sort of you know love of that sort of I love the fact place. that Spandau the first name of the band was The Gentry <laughs> It was almost a bright, bright said. <laughs> well, you know what, what happened, yeah. right? Now, because what's interesting about the, the Betty Page piece that you, you sent me to read when, when she... The manifesto. When, when we first in, she first interviews us, yeah. she comes up with this, this, this phrase, new romantics, although, you know, there is some argument whether that was the first time it was said, but let, I, I want Betty to have that. Because yeah. <laughs> um, it was the title of the piece, the new romantics. I'm not quite sure why she said that. Maybe it was because we were, some of us, wearing sort of 18th century trousers, you know, like, <laughs> just like romantic <laughs> poets, you yes. know, whatever. Yes. You know? yes. so we pretended that we'd been, we'd been born fully formed in the Blitz Club or Billy's. Yeah. But it wasn't the case, you know. We were a power pop band called The Makers before, called The Roots, right. called <laughs> The Cut. We formed post-punk yeah. after I'd seen The Sex Pistols in 1976, at school, yeah, yeah. I, it was a different bass player. It wasn't with my brother, and then we eventually get rid of my brother. We were trying to chasing Generation X around and making our own pop art T shirts, and Power Pop was our thing. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And then we we got this. We started becoming Soul Boys, and we thought, you know, Soul Boys. This is the thing about Soul Boys, and there was a sort of element of politics about what we did because Steve Dagger, who was managing us, who was three years older than us, was off to LSC, and he was very, he would, you know, he'd be on picket lines and. And he said, look, the thing is, enemy, melody maker, sounds, none of them write about black music unless it's reggae, because reggae is like a hippie music, right? But they won't write about soul music. There's no one writing about disco. Why? Because it's working class aspirational music. And it's not political in that sense. It's just about fun, dressing up and spending money. So we should dress as soul boys to piss them all off, because that's who you are. (laughs) But we couldn't match the music with that. But we call ourselves the gentry because we were saying we're working class elite. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And that, I think, morphed itself quite easily. When we went to that Billy's Club night and I went with Dagger and Martin and Dagger turned to me and said, this is it. This is, these are the people we mm. want to make our band about. Right, right. Go and buy a fucking synthesizer. <laughs> yes. 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 You mentioned that the club that, was in the basement on Mead Street and I have this very vivid so I I was not I was really an outsider looking into that whole thing but I was going out with a girl who works on Harpers and Queen and she was very very interested in sort of street fashion stuff. so I remember her taking me into the Blitz 
Well, no, well, like, Billy's moved to the Blitz on a Tuesday night. Yeah. Billy's moved to the right, but also back at that. Yeah, so Blitz, I, the Covent Garden uh, yeah. venue, I, and I just remember feeling like a total fish out of water. Also remember <laughs> going down to whatever that club then became down in the basement and hearing to cut a long story short the first time and and thinking wow this is great this yeah. is you know this this new kind of electronic dance pop that we yeah. are starting to be sort of aware of and set almost like a template for the sound of early 80s british pop i think that record yeah, in so many yeah. ways you know, tony's the vocal style and just the that synth riff i mean it was a very i, I think, think there was something garagey about it when Duran came along there was a lot more production going on in their records and I, yes which I, obviously christ we ended up being highly produced sure but, but in those days i think there was you know richard james burgess wanted to sit you know, let's just Strip record you as you are yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it was a great live band as a real film It's funny me being here because, you know, in the sort of, you know, the centre of, of rock journalism, you know, <laughs> the cathedral, the cathedral, cathedral right. because the one thing, for some reason, we set up the rock press as our nemesis. Cool. It was part of our conceit, really, that all rock journalists were middle class, had the wrong view of the working classes. Because you know, yeah. I think we'd learned a bit from Malcolm McLaren. You have to have an enemy, right? And we decided our enemy would be the rock press. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't get us. They didn't get proper working class kids. They thought punk was working class, and it wasn't. It was manufactured by Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> you know, it, they were a boy band, you know. And, um, <laughs> and you know, they wore hugely expensive clothes, you know. Right. You know, soul and disco and what we are, that's proper working class, and you won't write about it. So no journalists were allowed into the gigs, right? Only hairdressers and designers. And it's interesting. <laughs> well, but when we say only hairdressers and designers, that's true. They yes. were working class kids who wanted to somehow be in the arts, right? And a lot of St. Martin's students, they weren't all working class, of course not. But there was such a diverse mix. This was, you know, diverse in class, diverse in sexuality, total fluidity, yes. you know, although it never had a name then, you know. Certain very macho lads I know now had relationships they don't like to mention anymore <laughs> back in those days. <laughs> but, um, and, and it's, and it, but, but for some reason, we decided that we would tell everyone that we were just, we created Spandau by within billy's and blitz nightclub yeah and we never existed ever as a band before because being in a band didn't really occur to us no, bands were, were, were passive. yeah and what's interesting reading that piece as well is it reminded me of how terrified i used to be when journalists arrived because journalist this journalist was was the only window that was going to allow the outside world the, the other kids that you were trying to get to sure. It was the, the access, only portal, the only right? portal. Yes. They don't, people don't think about that now because they can write whatever they want on their websites, on their Instagram pages, etc., about themselves and promote themselves. So journalists, mm -hmm. when they come to do that, and they're probably going to be friends. And I'd always admired certain journalists. Certain journalists were my portal. You know, so it was... It was um, oh, Charles Shaw Murray. You know, I mean, Charles was, was my go-to in the NME for Bowie. You know, and yeah, of course, yeah. he was he was the number you know, one Bowie. Uh, and maybe it was, yeah. and it was Nick Kent, and yeah. it was Tony Parsons. Yeah. You know, 
so it was terrifying and you 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 tried to say things that were outrageous you wanted to say something that was going to get quoted that was gnarly and then of course when you read it later it never quite came out with the tone of voice you'd have <laughs> <laughs> you know. sure sure it's interesting there's yeah. that tension between on the one hand making the rock press your enemy on the other hand kind of needing and wanting to get yeah. some so some what, validation in some respects from yeah. that and kind of get into you I, know, I think we'd get, we'd pretty portal. much written off getting a from what we called the black and white inky press at the time. And I think it was definitely that we knew a change was coming. We knew it was going to go into the face and into colour and into... And, of course, our first review mm. we we steve dagger stood over robert elms while he wrote the review <laughs> of us at uh at, i don't know i think it was the it might have been the blitz right i know somewhere and who took it into the enemy and got, managed to get past danny baker who was on reception and got the thing published yeah yeah i mean can you remember your very first tv well, to, well that, the first well, TV like was Janet Street. Janet Street. That's, that's, that's yeah. what I was wondering it's about. Yeah, record that. contract. Yeah, yeah. Janet had done this great documentary. She had this program called 20th Century Box, yeah. which went out on a Sunday afternoon, yeah. which was pre-Channel Four youth program. Right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And was it Channel Four? Maybe no, it wasn't. It was BBC, uh, ITV, London Weekend Television. Mm-hmm. And and she'd done the Sex Pistols, and that mm. really sort of transformed that it, them. And then she came and asked and she said, oh, I love your scene. Can you, you know, is there any chance to do a documentary about you guys? You know, and it was really about our scene, yes, you know. Yes. And, and so, you know, it wasn't just about the band. And I think that really... But see, I saw that probably before I read a word about you in the press, mm-hmm. actually. You know, yeah, I probably didn't... I wasn't a sounds reader. I wouldn't have read Betty Page's thing. So that Janet Street mm-hmm. thing was mm-hmm. actually the very first time I became aware of you at all. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it's very funny now. You know, we're roadying our own... Here, you know, <laughs> you know, and go to a proper, you know, and it's very, very low rent, yeah, and yeah. that's actually what is so nice about it. Looking back on it, except, you know, and then you see Robert Elms and and some, and I think Sade's in it. I don't know, but she's not Sade then; she's not a singer. I don't. Robert Elms is in it. He goes down to there was a shop called Modern Classics that Willie Brown in the then rather unfashionable Shoreditch or Hoxton was was yeah. was tailoring weird stuff, and we all liked it, and we all bought that kind of work clothes, which I love that phrase. Don't you work? <laughs> I've never done. That. <laughs> work in my life <laughs> and uh you know but you need work clothes for coffee bars don't you yeah and um, and, then, uh, and you know it's a real little snapshot yeah, a yeah. timepiece mm. of that sort of really tired london nine late 70s but kids striving to do something that is just unconventional yeah. arty you know not dressing like their dads you know but also rather different to Everything from the older brother's generation had yeah, done, yeah. you know. TV was interesting those days because there wasn't a lot of it. No. But if a band was on TV, a lot of people saw it. So it was actually quite a good introduction to quite a wide audience. Mm. Um, the first time I became aware of Joy Division, for example, was in So It Goes, Tony so Wilson's. That's program. right. Yeah. And they were, for me, memorable events, seeing bands well, for of course, the, the very Pistols first were on time. that as well, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. Well, I saw the Pistols at my art school in 75, but that's... Different tedious yeah. story, uh, <laughs> but, I think, but I do remember these certain key programs, and it's, it was never the old grey whistle test. It's never it was these odd marginal programs which would slotted in on a weekend afternoon or something right. like Janet Street Porter, like So It Goes. Yes, be like very important, you know, and, very, and, very and, and seeing bands who were barely. Well, is, I about. think this is what we're you know what we're all in agreement on is yeah. the mystique that you could build with such little access yes. to the audience, right? Yeah. So, mm. yeah. you know, if, if, 
if Spandau Ballet was were, were playing at the Blitz now, where a place where we weren't just selling tickets on the door, we were just basically playing to friends, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And you know, someone would have got in with a phone, put it up on YouTube, and someone would have exactly. written bollocks underneath, right? Yes. And then it'd be over, you know. <laughs> so, but you could build up this sort of like really yeah. this fast train of of, mm. of mystique yes. that people were all trying to jump on and catch. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, you played the music press and you played the TV slots you got. Yeah, you got yeah. Them. Mm, yeah. I love that Betty Page sounds piece because you do really get a sense of that scene of that. And then you, you talk about the, the HMS Belfast gig that you did and you say, it was a shame more couldn't come, but space was limited. There was no need to advertise. Those who wanted to go already knew about it, which I think really speaks to that thing of like, well, if you were in it, you were in it and you didn't need a big advertising budget or anything like that because you just had that kind of groundswell of sort of Yeah, people. I think I mean I was obviously I was obviously defending some of the mm. accusations against us being elitist and not <laughs> allowing regular because we didn't advertise in the back of the NME, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and along you know, supporting mean streets or whatever it was. <laughs> and um <laughs> so it was uh you know, we were trying to play unconventional places yeah. and we we had a ready made audience and and building the buzz and Would not you allowing say record you in. had learnt from Malcolm McLaren yeah, the way was Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, McLaren was the blueprint. Yeah. Although we wouldn't have admitted it at sure. the time. In sure. fact, I think in one of those articles, we slag them all off, don't we? And of course. <laughs> slag off Julie Bertrand. I love Steve Dagger says something about she bought yeah. one soul record. I don't know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what one she, he, he means. He means Evelyn Champagne yeah. King's but, shame. Because, I mean, you said about going to the screen on the green pistols gig that's yeah, yeah. exactly a mirror image of what you're talking about so a very exclusive yeah. show just to the people who know about it sort of thing well, i think it? people forget what that gig was like actually you know, it, 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 there because there's no footage of it there's some film of it and there's this recording everyone was sitting down there were the bromley contingent were down the front mm. most of them were sitting down mm. calling names to johnny you're crap what are you doing <laughs> this is rubbish <laughs> all part of the game yes and then i think there was and then philip uh philip saddle yeah salon so, no. sorry my brain Salon's was going then thank you 63 <laughs> <laughs> so we can Karen. thank you yeah. <laughs> philip salon jumps on stage the first time i'd ever seen philip salon and he was wearing a, a sort of a char ladies kind of coat you know yeah. and uh, and he started doing a bit of dancing but i remember steve dagger who took we i went with he went off to the loo while we clashed. The clash had just finished. Buzzcocks had been on with Howard Devoto. He went off to the loo, and all, he, just before the sex pistols, or as the sex pistols were coming on, he didn't realise. And all of a sudden, Johnny Rotten burst into the into the loo next to him, and I oh, just knocked my fucking tooth out on the mic. <laughs> and he had. He just. Well, and I remember I've never seen him doing it. Wow. Um, but it was very sort of. Yeah, low key gig, but yeah, it yeah. was extraordinary. The clash were extraordinary, and that sort of you know legs akimbo, sort of like yeah, paint sure. splattered boiler suits. That was so. I went straight. I'd, I was in a band already, and I went much older people doing kind of I don't know, sort of jazz funk country. God knows anything they <laughs> wanted to do. I was just playing guitar, and then and then I went straight into rehearsals on the following right. day and said I'm I'm quitting. And then we all we all formed our band. Yeah, but uh, no, I mean I, I do. You know, I like the fact that you guys observed the way he did certain things about the sort of semi-private gigs, the small scene thing, and just took it a step further. And you're right, I think it's a shame it's really hard to do now. You know, Mm. that the ability to grow a scene is very, very hard. I wonder when the last one was. You know, I'm thinking back to the Libertines. I remember there was a big scene around them with Kate Moss and all her crew turning up. 
maybe the Arctic Monkeys might have had a. So, I mean, there is a very scene. Well, their scene was MySpace, wasn't it? Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. They were the first uh, internet band. Yeah. There yeah. is a London jazz scene actually. That's, but that's the jazz scene, no, 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 no. But a different feeling yeah, scene, yeah. And, no, and I mean scene because it's people that go, you know, steam down yeah. on a Wednesday night, and it's like there is a kind of Real. no just feeling. I, to the whole thing. I completely accept that. The thing is, it's never going to go much beyond that scene by the nature of the music that's, that's played. That's not no, true, though. What's, di- what's uh, different here is about popular music. No, but this is becoming popular music. The comet is coming. You know, well, that kind of well, okay, that kind of jazz. I think. I think is. I mean, it's not. You know, it's. They have been saying this for sixty years, though. There's never been another Ackerbilk. No, what I mean is just that it's a young black. Yeah, no, there is, but the music is a. Maybe the music is. It's hard to say. Is the music too complex? Because look what happened to prog rock. I don't. I don't think so. Because it's you know, if you look at if you look at musicians like Little Sims and you know the kind of the mixture of putting that in the back, you know, hip hop and jazz. Now I think there is more of a. I still think it's just much harder to create a scene of that sort than than it was back. Well, then. a scene that's going to it's, it's going to really go overground. Yeah. Well, there's right. there's not any Which, such thing as like the mainstream pop press anymore. So, no, so there there's no you know people mm. are much more free to just pursue mm. what they're interested in mm. without mm. without there having to be a kind of major. No, but scene. if you're trying to build the talk of the town, right? That's from any manager's point of view or any artist's point of view. That's 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 a tough thing it's a tough game. yeah like, you know because my, my son works in the record business you know and it's access to everybody and and it, they come and they go they come and they go you know there there are five big bands out there and and no one can budge them you know and mm. anyway, it's so yeah. funny isn't yeah. it because yeah. i remember seeing that gig the one i was just talking about and the, and, and and joe strummer would sang no elvis beatles or the rolling stones and of course here we are the rolling stones are still on the <laughs> yeah. tour uh, the beatles we all still yeah. love and elvis the same well talk about like sort of scenes exploding i mean did you when you look back now how do you remember Groups like Spandau, and for that matter, like Duran Duran, other Depeche Mode. I mean, I saw early Depeche Mode. Yeah, I went down to Basel and saw Crop. Did you Uh, see them in Basel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, so these acts became the sort of defining British pop acts of of the early 90s and 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 had hits in america and we had boy george and annie lennox were on the cover of newsweek and i mean how do you remember that how did your ambitions grow as spandam how did you get from journeys to glory to true and gold but you know what i think a lot of it was to do with when it happened so that we had we felt a responsibility to the decade right it felt like the future because everything seemed to have happened in the you know the Beatles had split up before I bought my first record but Mm. everything seemed to have happened in that decade the 70s so the 80s this was this was us. Yeah. We had to do this, and we had to mm, do it yes. differently. And technology was changing. The synthesizer was much more accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about digital. We were, you know, things were going color. Mm. You know, the CD was invented, and and, and yeah. you know, I mean, you're just a there, massive. Listen, I can hear someone it? breathing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it almost felt like you were in a completely different world in the eighties. Which when I started writing, yeah, about, about music, and it was, I felt somewhat at sea because. Are still in a way stuck in the seventies, you know, yeah. in Bowie and I mean, you know, Todd yeah. and things like that. I mean, the band and I sort of still my heart and in a way my heart still is in the seventies because yeah. mm. that was when I was 
you know, growing up as a as a as a music consumer, and the eighties, I felt a little estranged by. There was a little and you've written definitive of, books on this. There was a sort of slightly <laughs> rounded cavalier thing around kind of new romanticism. Yes, and, right. And I mean, I certainly was probably more in the rounded camp, you know, and not that I was like you, you should be wearing raincoats right. and you shouldn't be so flamboyant, but I was slightly scared of fashion. Well, it's that's funny. when I went into Blitz. I was like, oh fuck, I'm going to be thrown out. Well, it's funny because in that in one of those pieces, uh, Steve Daggers being interviewed. And it's like it's me and see Dagger being interviewed. It's me and the manager being interviewed. It's so weird, isn't it? It's and great, Steve great says something. Oh, I hate yeah. the grey bands. You know, mm-hmm. and I know he's talking about Echo and the Bunny Man. Yeah. He's talking yeah. about shoegazing. Yeah, and right? he slags off orange juice in a certain uh, ratio. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, they're yeah, so yeah, boring. It's yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone printed the enemy staff choices of the singles of 1981, and it's just the most astonishing list of staff. You know, incredible. And it's yeah. got like Grace Jones, Private Lives, things like mm. that. You know, yeah. you got that sort of stuff in there. You got Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Yeah, Joseph K. You got a really um, interesting in stuff's bands. coming over from New York. The whole No Wave sort of mm. thing was really, for me, was personally really exciting. You know, James White and the Blacks. We were uh, all, all, all of that sort of stuff. Crazy. You know, and defunct. I'd defunct if somebody yeah. came over yeah. to England, I'd, I was down the front. You know. But what a great list it was. You got Night Nurse by Gregory Isaacs. You know, yeah, a lot so, of great music. So, I, I think actually in some ways 1979 to 1982 was on the most exciting stretch for British popular music, you know. And there was so much brilliant stuff happening. And so a lot of people were inventing their 1980s. Mm. Yeah. I, think, I, think, I think one of the keys for us and for all those bands you just mentioned and the success abroad and globally was we wanted that. Yes. We yes. didn't yeah. want to be indie. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, 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 I'd grown up buying mm-hmm. singles. I'd grown up sitting in the quad playground, you know, with the transistor radio that we were all sharing, listening for the charts to yes. see yeah, who yeah, gets yeah, the yeah. number you one. You on a yeah. Sunday night, right. the countdown. The, the charts to the were radio. music yeah. premiership yes, yes. table. Yes. You know, yes. so I wanted to be that person with singles, you know, selling singles. And I think that ambition happened at the same time as MTV came well, along. So you had yeah, MTV, you sure. had good-looking bands, bands, yeah. young kids who wanted to look good, wanted to dress up, and you know that marriage of that of of, of, of of yeah, everything's things are always relying on mediums, yeah. right? You know, so what is whatever art yeah. relies on medium? You know, peop, the 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 reason the album is is as we know it is that twenty minutes of of vinyl fitted a movement of a symphony yeah 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 you know, mm. I, but yeah. I mean, there's, there's other interesting things it's like you know what political could go from skank block bologna to the sweetest girl mm. that in itself is the same thing it's and like, then to working with yeah, arif martin exactly. in new york so, so it's, which it's really it's, interesting it's not good enough to be a scratchy post-punk band playing at clem hall you want yeah. to make a things of beauty, yeah. you know, produce really beautiful. Trevor fa- Horn fa- comes in. And, you know, yeah. well, can we just season. mention Joy Division? You yeah. know, I mean, Love Will Tear Us Apart. You yeah. know, that really, you know, a commercial record. With, with we didn't think of it as at the time with an incredible rhythmic engine. Yeah, yeah, right. I was and, thinking basically it nicks, it steals from the crystals, and then he kissed me. <laughs> yes. There we go. But, anyway, but but, you know, but, but it's, it's you know. You know it, Punk lasted no time at all. I mean, punk, as yeah. its great years, was basically 18 months. 
you know, pretty much. And then straight after that, 1978, then 79, people trying to find new ways of doing things. In a way, you slot into that. What are new ways of doing things? Is it just like having a monophonic synthesizer? Is it whatever, you know? Yes. Uh, 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 and so, sort of 79, 80, 81, 82, it's this extraordinary explosion of creativity goes on. Yeah, yeah, it really, um, it really, it really I But I think it's, 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 that pipeline into America was very, yes. very important. I remember first touring America, right. and 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 the West Coast, which had MTV, had really got it, and they had mm-hmm. K Rock, and they had they were playing yeah. British records, and the, you know the Americans couldn't compete. Part of the, the British were the only people making videos. They were. At that time. It was yeah. a Bruce Springsteen had his arm broken virtually to make a, yeah. a, a, a video, and he did Dancing in the Dark, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. and yeah. it changed his career. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Um, so American suspicion of, of of sort of glamour in a way and exhibition. Yeah. yeah. Well, it all comes back to, I mean, one of the great quotes in that Betty Page piece is, I don't think they, as in the music press, liked the idea of dressing up for some reason. They didn't like the idea of fashion as a progressive force, but it's nothing to be ashamed that's of. Steve yeah, it's, that's, Dagger, that's Steve Dagger. So. And, yeah. and yeah. fashion as a, as a progressive force, I think, is a really interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we're using words like flamboyance and we're using words like, yeah. you know, dressing up, all of that stuff. There's a, a lot about self-expression, a lot about homophobic repression of that kind of self-expression. Yeah. When you think about drag, you think about New York, you think about that whole... No, we were trying to break out of that. Exactly, um, right. Exactly. And, and so I think, what it, I think you're right, and I think this is, it's a quite an important thing to say, that we were, we were pro the dressing up, because we saw it as a, as a political statement. Yes. So we'd say, in our very sort of like simple way, that... that Middle class people, upper class, well, middle class people, the intelligentsia, they had their books on their shelves. The they had their, elite. their, their, their <laughs> metropolitan elite, which I, of course I am now. <laughs> which you now embody. But, but they, <laughs> have, they have, their, you know, they may have letters after their name. What we have is ourselves as our canvas. Yes. Mm. And when we walk out into the street, you know, because nowadays everyone has a profile on, you know, Instagram or Facebook and they can show what they look like. Those days you had to walk out. Yeah, yeah. It was all about place. Yes. And it was all about destination. Mm. Where is the place that it will happen? Mm. And this Where is interesting because this will tie in to our little chat on Pink Floyd. Yeah. Because there is a complete similarity between how Pink Floyd started and how Spandau Ballet started. And it's prob- it's, a, it's like a quarter of a mile. Mm. And, you know, we start in this little club that is the happen- most happening place in London in 1978-79. They start 12 years before that in, a, the, in the most happening club in London at the UFO Club. Yeah. And they became the house band. There was a history. We knew about that You're at right. the time. There yeah, was a yeah. history of this happening, you know, whether it was, you know, you know over at the railway Tavern Hotel or whatever with that with that scene mm-hmm. going on, or whether it was you know at the UFO Club or whether it was at Middle Earth with right. with Tyrannosaurus Rex yeah, yeah. and Bowie to a certain extent, whether it was was maybe at the Roxy you know yeah uh, you know so so this we thought the Blitz Billy's this is the new place it needs a house band right. Yes, exactly. Uh, you've done what we always have to do ourselves, which is you've segued into the next, uh, <laughs> the next subject. Uh, I'm so grateful to you. Um, but I, I was how my segue was going to be if someone had come up to you when you were like queuing to get into Billy's or even a little bit later into Blitz and said, one day, Gary Kemp, you will be playing with Nick Mason of Pink Floyd. <laughs> what would your response be? Yeah, well, 
Ah, fuck off, mate. No fucking way. My response to Betty Page would have been one thing, right? <laughs> my, and, but my, 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 my inner child would the have real. been buzzing because, you know... The I, child inside. My, yeah, you know, I went to see Floyd at Wembley Arena, whatever it was called in those Empire, days, the Empire, Empire Pool, Pool. in 1974, 75. Right. I went to the Dark Side of the Moon tour where they also in the, i think in the first half presented what was going to become the wish you were here album which was and i remember clearly shining you crazy, Shining you crazy because it was yeah. one of the just I mean, song. incredible pieces i would, say, of I would say personally it's the best song pink void ever made apart from our lane no, of course, better, <laughs> better than. Anyway, and, 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 but of course, you've got to remember it, because if you listen back to those tapes now, because they're out there in the world, some of what they did didn't end up on Wish You Were Here. It ended up on Animals. Right. Raving and Drooling ended up as one of those tracks on Animals. I'm oh, sorry, Pink Floyd geeks, you know what track I'm talking about. I can't <laughs> name it. Um, but you get the... You, you, so I remember clearly being on a summer holiday in Poole, Bournemouth, staying at my mum and dad's friend's house, and their oldest son having Dark Side of the Moon and me playing it over and over, asking him, Steve, please play that record again, play that record again, and couldn't wait to go back to school. So I would have been 13. Mm -hmm. Couldn't wait to go back to school in, in the September to tell everyone that this is the album of the year. So... We were having discussions <laughs> earlier about how much you, you do or don't like uh, Dark Side of the Moon. But I had no bias. I had yeah, no, sure. I, had, I knew nothing about Pink Floyd. Absolutely nothing. And then I heard this record and it, I fell through the gaps in the music. That's how it felt to mm -hmm. me. The space they allowed, it was quite... I could understand it. It wasn't like prog rock, which was complex and barky and, and, mm. and cathedral-like. I understood this because it was blues-based, yeah, song-based, but it, it was that... It was ambient. It was very ambient. Gorgeous it, space it, it, in the record. Before ambient music. Extraordinary it was, it was, production. Yeah. I mean, whether you love Pink Floyd or no, not, uh, uh, it, for the, for the mm, time, it was... So, it was amazing. Quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also, this it's, is very clever, this conceptual thing, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, because really the album's not very... It doesn't have a storyline, no. it doesn't have a through-line. Neither really does Ziggy Stardust, no. you no, know, as much true. as people rant on about that. True. But what, what humans love to do mm. is join lines between disparate things. That's yeah. why we're great conspiracy theorists, aren't we? Yeah. So <laughs> someone tells us, someone joins the tracks together and tells us there's some kind of yeah, concept yeah. there. We'll be looking for any little line we can draw and find, and people are still doing I that. I mean, in a sense, what went wrong with Pink Floyd is then they discovered that... They made too much money. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, The Wall is the direct byproduct of, of, of them actually deciding that we will be conceptual in a real sense. You know, mm. the, 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 as you say, the Dark Side of the Moon, it's accidental. It's how we perceive that album as being a, a coherent piece in mm. that, in that mm. sort of concept album respect. But it told them that that's what they should do. And, they well, started, and certainly Roger Waters started pursuing that. Yeah, I think lyrically, Roger Waters pursued that and pursued a lot of self-obsession about being yeah. a rock star and, you know... But they were always hugely experimental, yeah, right yeah, from no, the very no, no start. Doubt, no doubt. And we have to go 
you know, to thank Sid for so much. He's uh, even after he left, the, mm. the reverberating down the history of Pink Floyd, his presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so to any listeners who aren't aware of this, you know, Gary has been now for what six years almost yeah. playing as we had a COVID from gap. A, there was a COVID gap playing with with Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason in Sourceful of Secrets. But one of the reasons we wanted to invite you in for this episode was because of the 50th anniversary of of Dark Side of the Moon. But let's just talk a bit about Sourceful and the the fact that you, as as a group, made this decision to focus on early Floyd and sort of SIDS Floyd in many ways. We did the first five albums. We did the first five albums. But initially it was... It was like let's go. I mean, go back and and, and mm. look at those. Go back to songs. UFO. Go back to UFO. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, how, yeah. how yeah, did yeah. it come about? I mean, there's so we've got three Pink Floyd pieces that went in. The last of them is an interview with Nick from July 2018, um, and I think you either just played the first two or three shows, yeah. like Dingwalls and so forth. Yes, you're about to, or you've just played them, and 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 Nick talks about how he doesn't want this to be. Well, a Pink Floyd tribute band, yeah. like the Australian Pink Floyd. So, t- what was the first you knew? Was it was it was it was it Guy who mm-hmm. had played in various Pink Floyd tribute bands reaching out to you? Guy, yeah, Guy would have call, Guy would have yeah. called me first. But what happened was Lee Harris, who had played guitar with the Blockheads, yes. post Ian Jury, had seen Guy playing with with David Gilmour down in France, where where Lee lives. And was really buzzed by it. This is incredible. And then he thinks about it and he thinks, why doesn't Nick go out and do anything? Hmm. Why doesn't Nick go out? And how would we approach that? Maybe it's just the, uh, do you know, I th- I'm sure it was Lee's idea who thought about doing the early stuff. I think what, what, what the reason for that is everything after medal is Imperial Floyd. <laughs> it's, it's, it's done endlessly, yeah, but it yeah. has to be done like a fly dentist would approach it. Right. right? <laughs> In great detail and microscopic. Yeah, yeah. And all the solos become very purple. Mm-hmm. You know, these are like Shakespearean soliloquies. <laughs> and you have to get them exactly right. right. And all those people, even ones who go out with Roger and... Uh, the guitarists that play with Roger and the guitarists and all the, of course, all the tribute bands, they all emulate the sound. And Guy called me and he said, you know, I don't know, because he had already met with Nick then, because Lee and Guy go, Guy sends Nick this one page that Lee had written out with the idea. And he thought, you know, this will just be a nice lunch with Nick because he's always <laughs> worth a nice lunch. And I knew Nick anyway. Right. And Nick quite liked the idea. He thought mm. it was quite good. And he... I think he came, he threw the idea in of me playing guitar uh, because we were friends and Guy was, a, you know, was a, one of my oldest friends. And uh, so Guy gave me a call and he said, look, you know, this is the idea. We went into rehearsals tentatively. Nick wouldn't bring any of his drum kit. He rented the tiniest kit you could find. It was a, a room st- not much bigger than the one we're sitting in now. A very small room, uh, smallest rehearsal room in that Nick could find. I think he just wanted a bit, really get back to the sort of Mm -hmm. like you know he was fed up with all the equipment and everything you know i mean it's like they build a city when they rehearse for pink floyd in those days and the first songs we tried out were almost certainly arnold lane were interstellar overdrive and set the controls for heart sun we all looked at nick and he went same time tomorrow (laughs) 
And we thought, oh, nice. this is going to go well. Yeah, nice. yeah. Um, I have to say that my first, the first early Floyd I ever heard was See Emily Play, and it was by mm. Bowie. Right. Right, on right. Yeah, on okay. yes. I, ne- I never really... Yeah, and and yeah. then Relics came about post-Dark Side, right? We all bought Relics and then we all heard all it was the other stuff and then I got mm. into everything. Yeah. Uh, that first tour, we never did Echoes. Echoes was the bridge to Imperial Floyd. In yes. fact, it was the first one, really. Yes. And yes. and I think certain... there was Everyone was a bit tentative and we shouldn't be, mm, shouldn't right. be treading on anyone's... T- maybe Echoes isn't right. And David had said that he didn't want to play Echoes again. And Guy had after Rick had died because he said it was a conversation between him and Rick. And understandably, Guy was feeling loyal to David and wasn't sure about doing Echoes. And Echoes is something we, we felt strongly about doing in the end because, because Nick co-wrote that. Yeah. This is you know as important to him as it is to anyone still living in that band we i think we did a, a fantastic job of it uh it came, but it was our second tour that we that we really put that one together yeah. and it wasn't a tribute band it's not a tribute band no. because of two things one nick is, is in it, the it, band it, yes. <laughs> and, and and this is the most interesting nick stuff don't forget you know this is when he's using his mallets you know mm. just watch the pompeii film you know mm-hmm. he he's plays so much more stuff more jazz right. orientated mm-hmm. yeah. than he did later on in post dark side and also because nick said we want to make this all our own. You don't have to do exactly what David plays here. You don't have to sing yeah, like yeah. this. We don't have to get that keyboard. Let's make this band, you know, explore the music mm-hmm, of Pink right. Floyd. So we did that. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Great. Set the controls for the heart of the song. You mentioned Rick, the week's new audio interview <laughs> yeah. on, on RBP is one we we've we've dug up with with Rick Wright. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to tell us about yeah, it? yeah, it's Jim Sullivan, it's a phoner, uh, Jim Sullivan who wrote for the Boston Globe. Rick's done a solo album called Broken China, which I have to say I inflicted on myself yesterday. <laughs> uh, uh, not an experience I'd like to repeat. But um, it's about, I mean, it's very interesting. It's a very dark album about his wife's depression, which is not something one would normally sort of jollily write. In fact, I think um, Jim Sullivan's first thing is, um, well, I heard your jaunty album, you know, <laughs> it's kind of slightly sarcastic. And he talks about melancholia in his music and melancholia in Pink Floyd's music. That's all fine. He talks about, even even though it's about his wife's depression, he had a lyricist write the lyrics, which I find fairly kind of mind-bending in itself. Sinead O'Connor sings on it, and talks about himself becoming a singer, which if you listen to the album, one could have certain doubts about. But then the question is, what's up with the Floyd? And he says, well, we haven't got any immediate plans to tour this year. And it turns out they didn't tour for another four years or something. You know, um, there was a big, big gap. Because this is 97, it's January 97. And then he talks about... His, but of course, I, mean, I was just saying, I just want to say, in, in, in Rick's defence, yeah, as yeah. a singer, mm. I mean, that's, you know, there's some the echoes and, you know, he's, mm. he sings on that. He's very, he's very, he's very he, he talks about being very self-conscious and actually relaxing into the act of singing again, because he probably hadn't done it for a long time by this 97. Mm. Anyway, then he talks about his dismissal from Floyd, Roger Waters, but doing the wall... Roger saying, "If you're not going to contribute anything to this, we want you. We want you out of the band." And him basically dragooning him out of the band. Let's have a mm, listen to this this, mm, this mm. clip. It was fucking. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I have to say, I always have to. I I think everyone knows, but I mean, 
it was a terrible time. Yeah. And it was basically, I didn't have much option but to mm -hmm. agree to leave mm -hmm. for various reasons. And, um, but it was bad. And I certainly affected me. Yeah. Looking back now, um, it, it did affect me quite deeply. Yeah, yeah. And because I look at the period of my life after the war, mm -hmm. where I attempted to do an album with someone else mm -hmm. called Identity, mm -hmm. um, which was really a mistake because I wasn't really there. Uh -huh. And I, was, I wasn't suffering clinical depression, but I would say I was depressed. Right, sure. And therefore had no energy to put into music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, however, you know the story, then I kind of rejoined... Well, I went on the road with Dave and Nick for a moment she lapsed. Right. And from there, everything came back. Then you were a part of the band again. And then, yes, right. that tour was very right. important. Right. By that time, Dave and Nick, as you know, I'm sure, were yes. huge fights with Roger. Yes, of course. <laughs> you, won't, you won't get into <laughs> no, the fights no, no, with no. Roger. <laughs> Actually, I don't know why not, because I mean, half of my, my pleasure as Rock's Back Pages is finding another interview with Dave Gilmore, where in the most... <laughs> Clips. I mean, he basically, Dave Gilmore is now like a retired lieutenant colonel from the British Army. And with this extraordinary restraint, posh restraint, he's so rude about Roger Waters. But it's all done with this extraordinary res British restraint, you know. It's, uh, yeah, I, kind well, of, I have to be careful because they're, all, they're, they're be friends careful. of mine. But, yes. uh, and and um, what I will say is Rick's tenderness mm. really shines through in the Floyd catalogue. Right. If you take something from the early days, which we do live, which is the um, Source of the Secrets, mm -hmm. and, you know, which is an extraordinary piece of music, because it starts off with chaos, and then these incredible chord sequence comes out, I think it's something like 12 chords, different chords, back to back. You know, it's a beautiful chord sequence that comes out of that. I enjoy that whenever we play it. Later on, I mean, let's take Dark Side. We were talking about Dark Side. So us and them, mm -hmm. you know, and then people do seem to think, oh, yeah, it was Roger's record song, Roger's... You know, us and them comes from an instrumental piece of music right. that's on the Zabriskie Point soundtrack right, right, right. called... Which got dropped, actually, from the Zabriskie Point soundtrack, got dropped. You can find it if you look, go on YouTube. And it's called The Violent Sequence. Mm -hmm. The Violent Sequence. And it's us and them instrumentally. And that's when Roger, then Roger, went and wrote lyrics on top of that. Right. And of course, then we've got Great Gig in the Sky, yes. which is one of the most oh, extraordinary yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's, that's, that's really good. So, so I think he did have a very yeah. unique style. And he, he, he pushed the, the influence of, of his music into that band. Yeah. And, and, and there's, you know, so, so when people highlight David and Roger... Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it's not really no no very I, fair. I, I have to get it. and actually on this in this interview he says the dispute starts because he hasn't Rick hasn't brought anything to the table for for the new record they're going to make which became the wall and Roger was very angry that Rick hadn't produced anything and that was his, 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 his what started the ball rolling no. but it was interesting <laughs> that about him not producing anything and that goes exactly towards what you're saying that he was an important contributor musically to the band before then yes. so so anyway so they, 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 they go through that then the last bit we'll listen to this clip is about the current state of Sid Barrett famous it's always been since yeah. uh, he left the band back in 68 yeah. nothing has changed it's yeah very sad I, I did hear he was in the hospital i guess is yeah. that right i yeah. believe he's now going to hospital because he's um 
he's diabetic. Uh-huh. And uh, I sadly to say, I think he's, they say he's possibly going blind okay. slowly. Yeah. So it's very, very sad. There's not much more I can say. You're not in touch at all? No. 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 Okay. I know, would add that we're not in touch because we've been asked not to get in touch by his doctors. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah because it doesn't help him. Because you remind him of what he had? Exactly. Yeah. You remind him of what was, uh, he yeah. still remembers. Doesn't, yeah. yeah. And puts him into deep depression. Yeah. Okay, I can see and that. And so we have actually been asked, sort of, Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing you can do, and you, it doesn't help to right. actually speak to him or see right. him. Well, that's sad. Which is very difficult for us, but we just respect the doctors. And sure, sure. And, sure. and his mother said that, too. Now, his mother died, I think, yes, didn't she? Did. Yes, okay, yeah. fine, okay. But the word is that, all, that he's, you know, he, he's comfortably off. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, hap- he's generally happy mm-hmm. in, in his own little world. Yeah, right, so, right. I mean, he's not suffering. Which is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Financially or emotionally. I, he's basically happy. Right. Remember when you were young? <laughs> you shone like the sun. Does that make sense to you, Gary? Well, I mean, obviously, he'd, he'd blown his mind out a long time ago, yeah, you know, and, the, and, the, and, and, you know, Nick has told me the stories of, of Sid and how, you know, he, he just became someone they didn't know very, very quickly in those early days, you know, when they obviously called up Gilmore and got help from him. But I, yeah, Nick talks quite a lot in what you've done, two Rock on Tours episodes yeah. with Nick. The first one was with Nick, wasn't mm-hmm. it? And I can't remember which one... I think it's the first one you talk about Sid and, and acid and the amount of acid he took. Is yeah. The type of acid. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, acid. You know, it's not just about the acid. It was the, no, guy, it was the guy who was obviously, you know, wasn't the sort of person who should be taking yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there's that extraordinary story, isn't there, where Sid, well, they're, they're recording uh, Wish You Were Here and I couldn't tell you what studio that was in. Abbey Road? Uh, well, let's say Abbey Road. Oh. And... Uh, there was a, a guy appears hanging around, a yes. uh, large man, bald head, yeah. and people thought, oh, he just works at the studio. In fact, Pink Floyd, they, gather, they think, this guy just works at the studio. Nick says that he suddenly realised who it was. Right. And he said to David, it's Sid. Yeah, yeah. And Sid was sitting there while they are recording yeah. Shine On You Crazy Diamonds. That's that particular song, which is about him. him. Yeah. About him, exactly. Yeah. And there's that wonderful moment at the end of the final part uh, of of shining your yeah, crazy yeah. diamond, where as the track is fading out, you hear Rick play on the synthesizer the melody to see Emily play. <laughs> When we first approached all that early music, he, he realised what an extraordinary pop songwriter he was for a start. You know, Arnold Lane is just a you know, fantastic song about cross-dressing. And, you know... And, yeah. uh, Prefiguring and, uh, the and, new uh, romantic movement. Yeah, and obviously see Amy playing the whole psychedelic stuff. But what else? The other thing was what, what they were doing on something like In Star Overdrive, which was jazz-based, if you like. It has this big riff at the beginning, and then it's total atonal freeform... Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic footage, I think, somewhere out there where Frank Zappa's playing it with them. And then it eventually comes back to... This is obviously pre-David. 
comes back to the riff and when you get to the riff it's like that's the relief you know the release of yeah. this moment of of recognition and mm. something tuneful and so when we approached that track it was it was it was great fun to do that to work out that breakdown to try and find out how we can uh, still keep people interested with this atonal stuff you know but you watch the old footage and you see sid playing with delay machines mm-hmm. and he's got the vincent echo machine in front of him and he's and it's all delays all delays well, when David came into the band a little while after that, he had to pretty much emulate what Sid were, had, had started in the group. And so the delay mm-hmm. and echo that, that Sid had, had sort of played with, David takes over. It's David's thing now, you know, it's right. what he does. It's how he, one so, of the so great s- parts s- of his palette. So Sid's DNA yeah. just carries on through the band's history after his I, I think so because yes. Roger also writes an album all about him yeah, well, pretty yes. much you know <laughs> and, and I think there is to have madness that close to have your friend turn into someone they didn't recognise so quickly yeah. must have made everyone feel vulnerable and I think you know Roger obviously has written lyrics about yeah. that for many years but also this is 1968-69 people weren't attuned to dealing with mental distress in those days mm. you know we we didn't have the armory that we have collectively have now no. you know so what was happening to Sid was an absolutely baffling mystery to everyone you know if that was to happen to someone now there would, there would be interventions at a very much earlier stage you know the the the, the maybe solutions in you know but, um, but, but Sid became a sort of messianic enigma didn't he really yeah f- for the band as well as well, for the true. fans yes. yeah I would have thought, you know, that became part of the inspiration and part of the religion of Pink Floyd. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. We mentioned Rock on Tours, which is a one. Can I can I just finish off a little bit on this? Yes, of course. (laughs) Because one of the articles you sent me was a a review of them doing Dark Side for the first time. Yeah. Well, I want so so you know well. You won't, you won't we, come back yeah, so there's, there's, there's two people, including the little interview with, with Nick that I mentioned earlier. Rather fascinating that we've got these two sort of bookending pieces around Dark Side. One is from a year before the album was released, and one is from a year after the album. Both enemy pieces. Yeah, yeah. And then the first one, um, Tony Stewart goes to Brighton Dome to hear the very first performance of Eclipse. You know, Eclipse. Yes. Dark Side of the Moon. There are problems with the sound quite, after quite, about half quite, an hour. Quite, quite, well, no, actually, system. let me just get there, because it was called Dark Side of the Moon. It and was he called says Dark, Dark Side of the Moon. Moon. And what happened is Medicine Head had an, had an album, album co- coming out Dark Side of the Moon. And they thought, oh, so damn shit, we can't call it Dark Side of the Moon. Let's call it Eclipse something about lunatics. Yeah. Um, and then I think probably Medicine's Head's album didn't do very well. <laughs> and they then... Funny that. Yeah, yeah. So they got you know the what? Top, I liked Medicine Head. Head. I remember buying yeah. Medicine Head's Pe- single. Well, they, were, they were on the Dandelion label. Yeah, and it was a very nice label. label. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and of course, if you listen to that first Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Brighton, it, everyone says, oh, they first did Dark Side at Brighton. They actually don't. They, they, the plug gets pulled at money. Because there's some problem with the... With they had a quadraphonic sound system, yeah. which is an absolute nightmare. This is live PA. Having a quadraphonic PA is really hard work for everyone involved. And uh, Rick, uh, Rick used to operate what uh, the sort of zenith control. or what, uh, the, <laughs> the sort zenith of To control. move things around the room. <laughs> to move things around the room. Wow. The zenith wow. control. Sounds like a Robert Ludlum novel. <laughs> 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 zenith yeah, control. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, new yeah. novel by Robert Ludlum. Yeah. 
And yeah. anyway, so there, there was a problem, wasn't there? And, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. the PA started hissing and yes, burping, yeah, and yeah. it was a horrible. And you can hear this. This is all on YouTube, of course. Um, <laughs> and, and Even things that didn't happen <laughs> no, are on no, YouTube. No, no. <laughs> and then they they all go off, and then they wonder what to do, and they come back on and do careful without axe usually, right. and they don't finish Eclipse. The first time Dark Side was ever played was the next night at Portsmouth Guildhall. Hilarious, okay. marvellous. And is that on YouTube? Or I somewhere? don't think... No, right. no probably is. the gate after that was probably the Colston Hall Bristol, but, as, as yeah. was. Because well, so, we, we chased this around because we, yeah, we yeah. played... We wanted to play uh, Brighton Down because of that. Yes. We, did, we did that on the last tour, and we played Portsmouth Guildhall twice. So, Brighton Down's a lovely venue as well. It's, Beautiful, it's yeah. really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, and that first Dark Side didn't have the um on the run right on it it was this it was a if, if you listen to that that the on the run was only developed in the studio when they got the uh the vs3 synthesizer yeah 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 that it was it was a track called the travel sequence mm-hmm. which is very different it's right. kind of based on david's funky guitar part right, but right. that that was that was where that was what's yeah. lovely about the tony stewart piece is because he, he he talks about he says that there's literally still writing bits of dots yeah, yeah. on the bus down to brighton <laughs> you know so it's all yeah. it's all kind of in flux and coming together but it's a fascinating piece and there's a, there's a great quote from from nick saying you know how excited he is he feels excited for the first time in a, in a while because you know smart mother and obscured by clouds hadn't done terribly well either critically or sales wise and there was a new feeling that this this music would would kind of really put them over well, it's the really top. funny because we draw on those albums and actually yeah. there's some beauty in there oh, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. absolutely loves them yeah. love them and we play atom heart mother yeah um beautiful. i think it you know obviously this was going to change their lives wasn't it a bit like you know i mean any band has that moment yeah, yeah, where, yeah, where yeah. The, that piece of music changed yeah, it's funny, i saw them at free concert in the park in 1970 and i hated it and it was real set the controls to have some careful with the acts. That those are the centerpieces of their set at that point. Yeah. And there's something about Roger's kind of quite aggressive delivery and sort of vibe he put out. Didn't like them one bit, but Kevin Ayers and the whole world was supporting <laughs> fell in love <laughs> with. Yeah, Kevin well, that was all part of wasn't that sort of the, the Cambridge scene was kind of close to that. Well, that's what like that was, well. Yeah, to bring on him. I got my scenes right. Well, no, Canterbury, 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 Cambridge. Cambridge. <laughs> the, the things that there wasn't really a Cambridge scene because the Floyd, two of them were down in London doing architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. is that, I mean, half, half of them were architecture students, weren't they? Well, uh, Nick and Roger were. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so basically, they are have always been a London band, even though as individuals they came. Yeah, very much Cambridge. as we discussed earlier with yeah. the UFO Club yeah. and jo- Joe Boyd, right? Yeah, well, whilst the Canterbury scene, even people in the Canterbury scene denied there was such a thing as a Canterbury scene. It's very much a sort of post fact sort of. You know, music journalists kind of construct mm-hmm. and just don't, didn't really exist at all. No, no. But um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I mean, for me, I think probably the, actually I'd said earlier about when was my first Floyd moment. Mm-hmm. It, it was probably one of these days with the with the dancers, the dancing animation on Oh Go Whistle Test. <laughs> Yes, yeah. yeah, those old cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of these days is, is pretty awesome, I think. Absolutely. Awesome. Do you, do you, do you play one of these days? We open, the show. We're gonna open okay. the show with that. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I always want things to hurry up before. It's like, like Shannon, your crazy diamond. It's just such no, a great. That's it's the such, beauty. It's like, I, ah, but it's such, <laughs> great, such, such a great song, but no, it's like three yeah. minutes no, of nothing in the if, middle. If, 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 <laughs> 
if I was just to say in two words what Pink Floyd is about, yeah. it's delayed gratification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. anyway, I mean, it's okay. funny you mention that because the, the second of the enemy pieces by the great Ian MacDonald, I think one of the great music writers, and, it, and it's, it's a year after the release of the album and he's essentially looking at why it's become this... this you know, incredibly huge, thing. huge selling yeah. album already by this point, and and he says, you know, he he doesn't he has real issues with it. I think it's not a complete slag off, but he says it's far too serious. And another thing, it's hopelessly slow. Not a single rocker among its six <laughs> songs, but actually, it's a quite thoughtful piece yeah. about what dark side kind of meant in terms of of, of musical culture at that time it, talk, yeah. talking about you know the whole the whole theme of hanging on in quiet desperation and and, and and all of that well you know i think roger came from a you know he was a middle class kid you know his, yeah. da- his, his dad was killed in the war That's you right, know yes. he 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 was part of that transformative generation that that you know in an, in another time he would have stayed in a very class ridden you yeah. know, he would have worked in the civil service, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very probably. And yeah. and so, and I think so. I think what was concerning him were were were, were particularly based upon that transition. Yeah. And how he felt about himself being famous and being a rock artist mm. and and classless, if you like. Because there is a mention in that article about somehow that he, you know, the, someone had written that you know, Dark Side was a socialist concept album. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. That's well, a stretch. Given his politics <laughs> now, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> given Roger's politics yeah. now, which we won't address. What are the plans with Source of Fall? Uh, uh, well, this year? We're, we're hoping on doing some shows yes. this year in, in various places, yes. uh, but it's not been announced as I speak. I may have to come along. We'll all be there. Um, I, I, I wanted just to talk about uh, David Crosby, who you had on the Rock on Tours yeah. podcast quite quite early or quite soon after you yeah. started it was the beginning of lockdown and you're talking about you're ever going to be able to play live again and, and well, so forth. that was the thing you know he was the it was one of the first ones we did and he'd agreed to do it because he's a friend of guys right and guy uh, well you know guy got to know him through david gilmore when he played with david and 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 guy actually i think guy had met him previously when he was playing with ice house they did a uh, they were doing an open air show somewhere and they were sharing the bill and david managed to get ice house to to let him have their winnebago because it had a, a proper cooker in there and he could <laughs> take his chemistry set in there and um uh but then david and then obviously you know he played with 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 Gilmore and 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 Guy had always had to do Crosby's harmonies on In an Island, which he said are extraordinary. They're just not anything that mm. anyone would would think about, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that wonderful close harmony work that he they really invented between him and Nash and, and he Stills. probably more than any of them was him the sort of a ranger of those you know, harmonies. Absolutely, but one of Odds, I'm a uh, confession time. I'm a Grateful Dead fan of a certain period, right? Let's get that out of the way. I can see the lip curling over there. Um, uh, and he went, he was very big friends with the dead. He taught them how to sing. Uh, this is a band who really couldn't sing. You listen to they, they weren't album. listening then, were they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you say that. You listen no, to American right. Beauty. You listen yeah, to American Beauty. Lovely harmonies. The harmonies are fantastic yeah. on it. And that 
is David Crosby. Yes. yes. And Easy. they're on... You know, his great solo album, if I yeah, can uh, remember my exactly. name. Exactly. You know, yeah. and that's, that's his yeah. really one of his probably, great achievements. And you probably go back to The Birds. Yeah, oh, sure. And obviously The Birds had this strange influence, which was obviously partly, partly Dylan, partly yeah, Beatles. Yeah. And they kind of, would you say they made the first sort of rock country album? Well, well, they, that's later. That's the Grand Parsons. That's, yeah, you know, so yeah. if, 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 do you mean? Well, Chris. I mean, actually, if there's anyone is the godfather of country rock, it's probably Chris Hillman. Right. On the first two Birds albums, he just sort of slips a bit of country into there. Right. Yeah. But I mean, they're such a strange band because they all write so different. Uh, very much out of the folk, yeah. the folk tradition as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and those harmonies yeah. would that have gone back to barbershop? Well, actually, for White Boys, because Crosby, Crosby's, you know was sort of rooted in in hollywood he was a real hollywood brat wasn't he so i mean he grew up listening to to jazz and to you know soundtracks and things like that so he was steeped in that kind of music my 10 year old loves glenn miller Right? right. So if you if you look under the apple tree with anyone else but me, <laughs> if you if you listen yeah. to those harmonies, how right. close yeah, yeah, and yeah. tight they are, yeah. extraordinary yeah, stuff yeah, going on yeah. in there. That would have been his background. Yeah. No, was, I know. I, I think absolutely. In a sense, I mean, you know, as a songwriter, he was he, he wrote a few. It's probably ten you know, really you, good it, songs, exactly. But out of the whole career, yeah. it's not a hell of a lot compared uh, um, to still well, eight miles high. Yeah. One of the first. Yeah, it was yeah. probably American but, Psychedelia. Being but that was written by Gene Clark. I think was a genuine great songwriter. And he was, and he was a fairly average guitar player. But I think this focusing on what he did about harmonies is really, really central to his importance. But also his ubiquity. This is—he's zelig. He goes—he goes from one hot scene to another hot scene to until drugs trip him up. Well, he is one of the key figures of the sort of protesting counter. Yeah, he's yeah, the yeah. However bogus yeah. sometimes that was, he's the guy who's like, you know, tear, tear down the government. Yes. Kennedy was, it was... An, yeah. Yeah. He almost cut his hair. And he kept yeah, that and he almost he cut his hair. <laughs> but, you know, and I think, you know, he, he was obviously the obvious one because he had that big moustache. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. but he was, I think he was the communicator. He was, he was definitely the, you know, you know, Stephen was the great guitar player and you know, Graham seemed to turn very humble once he'd met mm. the band. You know, uh, you know after after uh, the Hollies, because in a way, I don't know whether Graham maybe did he ever feel like he was properly American and part of it. I don't, I don't know. It's about as American as you can get <laughs> as a British, isn't it? <laughs> but, you but, know. But what a scene that was yeah, yeah. in Mama Cass's, Mama Cass's garden, place. Right? Yeah. But also in the Moscow yeah. Road. I mean... They, when but, they were here. Yeah, when they were here. Wait before mm. they even had made a record. They mm. were working in bloody Bayswater. Mm, mm. You know, I didn't mm. know that. Yeah, yeah. There was, so there's all kinds of stuff like that. And then drugs tripped him up. Now, I think a lot of people reckon that the death of his girlfriend in 1969... Christine Henson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. did head on. It was just awful. It, Devastating. It, it, Really did him in because um, he's basically he was oddly enough he's been kind of a one woman man most of his life like Jan he's Jan been with he's still with yes, still yes, with yeah. I mean they were they were Susan free Rogers, base buddies Susan Rogers the engineer she told me this great story she uh, she was working as a tape up in like, Graham Nash's studio in Los Angeles had to go out and pick up David and Jan from the airport. They come out carrying a cardboard box with their possessions, get in her car. He sets his leg alight trying to freebase while on the drive on the way to, to, to the hotel. He gets to the hotel. He sets his room alight freebasing. Mm. She has to smuggle them out of the tra- trainman's back entrance of the hotel, mm. you know. It was just 
awful. No, it was really it, grim. You know, it was really grim. I mean, we one of the pieces that we featured about David in the wake of his death was a piece... He was promoting the book Long Time Gone, right. which I think is really one of the great... Have you ever read Long no. Time Gone? It's one of the really the great music books, partly because it was co-written by Carl Gottlieb, who, who's just a f- fabulous human being. And he, he was a screenwriter for Jaws and other Hollywood movies. Um, and he, he'd been a power of Crosby's. So he wrote the book with... with and it is... My God, it's mm. a hair-raising really. But let's also remember what, Dave, what David did as an NR man, you know, yeah, as he says at the beginning of our uh, Rock so on Tours titles. Into, yeah. you, know, he, you know, I discovered Joni back in Florida, yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he brings Joni Mitchell up yeah. and, and then Jackson Brown. Yeah, no, it's mm. extraordinary. Um, yeah. And then his ability to piss people off has been really remarkable. I mean, of mm. all people to piss off, his longest defending buddy Graham Nash. Mm. They had a massive falling out in the last three, four years, didn't that they? That was like... I mean, you, you can understand him falling yeah, out with Stephen, you can understand him falling out with Neil. You could never have anticipated that him happened. falling out with Graham. You know, that felt very sad. Yeah, I don't know what went on there. No. When we spoke to him, that would already happen. Yeah, and he yeah. was... Uh, right. But the saddest thing was when he said to us, you know, I... I'm going to be 18 next week or something. And he said, you know, because of COVID going on, and he just said, you know, I, I'm scared I might never play again. Right, yeah. I think he did do some shows. Yeah, 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 he, he, he did, did, did do some yeah. shows. He was making music. Yeah. Also, I mean, I haven't heard the album, but I'm always really disapproved of musicians who become painters because they're generally shit. But Joan Byers did a portrait of him for that album, which is oh. really quite good. I have good. to say, I quite, like, I quite like Bowie's art. No, I think he did. <laughs> Look, if that was a German expressionist, he'd be digging it, right? I'd, I'd say Captain Beefheart was a genuinely good painter. Oh, God, yes. Um, yeah. Ronnie Wood, not. John, Ronnie Wood is a disaster. <laughs> John, Wood, John Lennon, a great illustrator. No. No, you didn't like that? No. That, 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 it was, yeah, but they were, no, they were quite unique. Uh, we have to do unique. a separate episode. A separate episode on, 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 <laughs> on, 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 on <laughs> Byers' por- portrait yeah. of Crosby. As, okay. as he's now, in the, uh, in the comedy I, spoof documentary I did, my brother and I did together, the Kemp's all true. I, I of course become a painter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway. So I'm not treading on any toes here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, but, we're probably but, yeah. better I, I, be wrapping I, I, up. I've so. got a few few things I yeah. want to just. How mention. are you for time? You, I'm, I, I'm okay. I've got. I'm actually got. I've got a guitar being delivered at my my studio in. Uh, in a, in a that's bar, quite important. At two o'clock, I think. Just through a very few, a few things which are going live. Last week, this is Philip Elwood and the San Francisco Examiner in 1973. The remarkable thing about the rock group called the New York Dolls, who began a three night engagement last night at the New Matrix on Broadway, wow. is that they're so consistent. The awful. Yeah. Lauded to the skies by some commentators and observers of the rock scene, apparently those who don't listen, the dolls have sometimes been compared to the Rolling Stones, and therein I think lies a significant point of reference. There we go. That, that, that was the, yeah. It's yeah. funny because every, even people who knew the dolls Was that Bob Harris? Was that Bob Harris? I never saw the dolls, but I, I did see, uh, I saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers yes. lots yes. of yeah, times, yeah, and yeah, they yeah, were yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, 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 but yeah, sometimes, yeah, and sometimes they were just that was part of it. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, is a living theatre. Right. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, this week, there's a couple of things. There's um, 
Uh, Richard Goldstein's review of Revolver for the Village Voice, August 1966. And it's, it's partly a review, partly Richard Goldstein being discursive and wonderful. He says things like, Many skirts and mod men look with mixed envy and scorn at the hordes of Madras crew-cut gleamers who have made the trek across the sea, American tourists. And this year, the mob is bigger than ever. There is a supreme British tolerance for bad weather, cold tea, and young, young Americans in T-shirts that say, Swinging London. Carnaby Street on the back. But beneath the bemused affection lies deep suspicion that, as a cowboy, you're liable to come out shooting when the local pub keeper says, Time, gentlemen, please. It's just as Richard Goldstein has done. Now, there's something that breaks through this. Pete Johnson, LA Times, 1968, sees Joni Mitchell play the troubadour. He says, her voice flies flawlessly through the songs, never settling into routine interpretation, but embroidering everything beautifully. And so on. It's a rave review. Mm. Step oh, forward, to ni- step, step yeah, forward yeah. five years to 1973, Judith Sims and Rolling Stone on the Troubadour itself. She says, why was Joni Mitchell recently playing the Troubadour Folk Club for several nights when she could play for as many people and more money in just one concert at the Pavilion or Santa Monica Civic? Was it love of her audiences, an urgent desire to be close to the public, or abiding fondness for Doug Weston, owner of the Troubadour? None of these, probably. Joni was playing out her fifth and final option at the club, one of Doug Weston's famous contract options that keep, <laughs> that keep top draw performers returning to the club long after they can fill huge halls for money. So I love that. This is five years yeah. later. She's playing the very last of her, yeah, her five yeah. options. But we, talk about, we were talking earlier about place, you know, and, and, and scenes beginning in places, and the Troubadour, obviously, is yes. that American version, isn't it? As yes, was someone yeah, like yeah. CBGB's yeah. or, or mm-hmm. you know, the Mud Club. Yeah, or yeah. yeah. Talk, talking of the Troubadour and that whole scene... I'm going to mention a memory I have of, of uh, going, you and I going to Dingwalls yeah. to see J.D. Salva, yeah. John David Salva, yeah. who was yeah. the sort of unsung hero. And I find uh, I know Gary uh, Kelly uh, going to see J.D. Salva. Well, it was it, we, inherently we, hilarious. Uh, it, well, <laughs> well it's, this, it's, there you go. I, yeah, mean, I you, just you, wonder you, you why, very... you know, this, this, this great looking talented guy never got the gal yeah you know that's well, that's he did he got all the girls he got all the girls but he never got the metaphorical one he never got the in the bank account you know I mean just he wasn't in the Eagles and I always thought you know what but yeah. he, that's the place he, he, but he could I'm sure if he'd said guys can I be an Eagle they probably would he was on the cover yes. wasn't he of, uh, no, no but, but he'd be nicking all their girlfriends I mean probably I mean David Geffen always said that you know he didn't think that J.D. Souther was like uh, was a joiner inner was like gonna, was a band mm. member. He was right. a solo artist, but then of course came Salva Hillman Furo band, which well, kind of proved the point. Well, yeah, they were, yeah. Ter- they were terrible. Exactly. But, but he, he did he also, you know, he shared, he shared a house with Jackson Brown, didn't he? There's all of that sort of. Well, thing. he actually he, so there's this fantastic little, little house in uh, Echo Park, which is Jackson Brown living upstairs and Glenn Fry and JD Souther living downstairs, and out of that came Take It Easy, which Jackson. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of artists at that time, you know, who, who were never quite sure if they were going to be songwriters or artists. You know, now every there's, there's everyone wants to be yeah. the artist songwriter, don't they? But you know, and I think there was there were a lot of people that you know, even Dylan when he started. Oh, I'm just really in the end, I'll just be a songwriter. Or, sure. or the Beatles, you know, yeah, they yeah. thought that was going to last long. I'll just yeah. be a songwriter. Yeah, and I think he kind of. Was he that kind of... Was that his mentality? I, I think in the end he just didn't have the sort of extrovert personality to be a solo artist on stage. Right, he just didn't have that mm. that quality. He was quite a brooding, 
sort of introverted figure. No, Although the guy we met was 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 very very charming, but he wasn't Glenn Fry, <laughs> and he wasn't even Jackson Brown. You think? I think it's probably what it comes to. Well, that's it's probably difficult to say because those guys come with the baggage of history, don't they? That we we that impress us that when we meet them. We know so much about them because yes. I've read it in more than they know about pages. themselves. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you say that, but like Jackson Brown was a hustler from his teenage years. I mean, hanging out with Nico in New York in 1966, you know, Jackson was a hustler in a way that maybe J.D. South simply wasn't to know. Yeah, you know, they, they, you know they had, I mean, Carol King was part of that songwriting. Yeah, to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, but she was definitely a songwriter who you would never in, in New York in nineteen sixty two, even though she had a couple of pop hits, you could never have anticipated her uh, tapestry. making Tapestry yeah. one of the biggest selling albums of all time, no. you know. But listen, we must wrap up. Jasper, have you got any I'll pieces? Just very just briefly mention two yeah. things. First of which is a review of Björk's homogenic James Hunter Great and Spin. Album. And he just writes about it really, really well and really interestingly. Björk, unlike so many before her, doesn't demonise the artificial and assign innocence to the natural. Instead, she keeps refining her more comfortably developed view, a vision that's neither tormented by machines nor too squished up by hippie dogma. She senses cutting-edge sophistication in trees and hears a lovably daft awkwardness in drum machines. Björk constantly mixes it up, less out of perversity or cleverness than an abiding faith in how things strike her, Mm. in the process she's managed to make anxious everyday life glitter. There's a great video... uh, film of her taking the TV apart yeah oh it? it's wonderful where she's like <laughs> she's like 13 or something and she's on Icelandic television taking this, <laughs> the, dem, you know demonstrating the innards that. of a television she's yeah. someone I brilliant. don't necessarily like what she does but I really admire her <laughs> She's you know, because she's just she's, she's ploughed her own complete path. Complete artist. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, really absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of her one of her finest albums. That's true. I must yeah. Say. yeah, I really do. And then, lastly, apropos of the Chuck D. Fight the Power documentary right. that has come out, a live review of Gods of Rap live at Manchester Arena on May the eleventh, twenty nineteen. Rob Hughes reviews it for Uncut, and it's Public Enemy, Wu Tang Clan, and Della Soul. You know, it's doing one bill. show, which is a pretty great bill. It's, it's a revivalist. It's, it's interesting because <laughs> it's like it's like hip hop realizing, oh, hang on a minute, we've got now this history we it's can draw rewind. on, mm, and we yeah, can and we yeah. can we can do the same thing that <laughs> yeah, rock yeah. has been doing for ages and just go back and. Have do you it. seen the documentary? I haven't seen it yet, but I do want you. You've you've, you've seen it all, haven't you? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very good and it's also very flawed because it takes a relentlessly positive view of hip hop, which is great as a political thing, as a thing that's changed black society and so on and so forth but it's economical but it's economical with certain truths Mm. I mean it does it does it brushes on the misogyny of so much hip hop and it it does it talks around the gang sort of culture is that the problem because it's an artist who's producing yes an artist also who's very political in himself so so this will be be very um, angelic it's very good about the very early days of hip hop Graham was a Theodore the the, the, um, Cool Herc Good um, footage that you haven't uh, seen and, 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 and a lot of good footage. Um, a lot of the usual, the usual talking heads. Well, they aren't the usual talking heads. They're quite interesting talking heads. You know, Moni Love is one of them. With a curious sort of hybrid South London American accent that she's sort of got there. Um, it's really, really worth seeing. It's right. probably the best documentary I've seen on hip-hop, but it, I do think it's quite flawed. Interesting, okay. interesting. Cool. But yeah, no, it sounds like it was a great gig, this Gods of Rap thing, and um, a lot of hip-hop shows can be a bit challenging, mm-hmm. but what I like from this is when Wu-Tang come on, 
Rob Hughes writes that they're, they're urged on by an ever more frenzied crowd, at least half of whom don't look like they were even conceived when Enter the Wu-Tang 36 <laughs> Chambers exploded <laughs> in late 1993. This, perhaps, is an indicator of Wu-Tang Clan's enduring reach, their cocky, free associative sketches of urban life amplified by squadrons of subsequent rappers from Kanye West to Kendrick Lamar. And I think that is interesting because there is that sort of slight bump, as you're saying, you know, gangster rap, but then pre-gangster rap and then the kind of more political stuff has really made a comeback. Yeah, yeah. So I no, think no, that's, no, it's, I think it's, that's cool. it's a very... In- I mean, I have kind of a, a, a love-hate relationship with hip-hop. There's chunks of it I absolutely adore. I mean, hearing Don't Believe the Hype was, for me, a bit like the first time I heard Hendrix doing Purple Haze. I hated it. And then, and then, and then two months later, mm. a massive light bulb went on. It's actually mm. the best thing I'd heard yeah, for yeah. years, you yeah. know. But, but you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of darkness around. Well, I'm a big fan of Kendrick Lamar, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. terrific. We, we, we Speaking love, of scenes him. earlier, I mean, the scene that, not to harp on about jazz scenes, but the West Coast <laughs> jazz scene, the yeah, yeah, play yeah. onto Pimper Butterfly. You mean with Thundercat? Thundercat mm, and, yeah, and, yeah, and Kamasi Washington and yeah, all those yeah, guys. Absolutely. You know, that, I loved Pimper Butterfly. is absolutely one yeah. of my favourite. I think records. one of the interesting things is that when they found that they couldn't really use samples anymore because 90% of their royalties would be going to a million different artists. I know, I was so upset about that. Well, I agree. I know, no, <laughs> yes, yes and no. On the one hand, I think actually the use of samples is fantastic and creative in itself, but it has forced people to actually looking to generate their own music yes, yes. which has been has, been has good, had some mar- genre, has had yes. some really good results mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I'm, I'm to be honest I'm just upset that Kanye is such a twat because I I thought he was one of the greatest producers in music he was a brilliant man oh god. god so sad so, so, so baff- I mean baffling yeah. and, and awful yeah, what's yeah. happened yes, there that's we've, it we've got to let Gary go thank you <laughs> he's got a guitar arriving I don't want to get in, in between yeah. you and the and what the sort of guitar, guitar have you got arriving oh no this, it's my it's my number one it's oh, called, and uh, it's one I take on tour with and me what is it? it it's a Fender Strat that I've had since 1981 Excellent. and it's had all kinds of changes to yeah, it over yeah. the years but I still play it as did my main write, guitar did you write true I, I didn't write <laughs> on it but I did record it right yeah, yeah. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Nice. beautiful nice thank you so much for joining us yeah such a great thank you really we had such a ball it's been huge fun um yeah it's lovely doing it in person because we you know since the beginning of lockdown you know we've done probably many more episodes you know on 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 zoom but great we'll be back in two weeks with the american writer fred goodman who wrote the wonderful book the mansion Mansion on the the hill Hill. Um, but we're going to be talking a lot about his new book about about chateau music no mansion hill is about the music business It's, it's it's a really brutal takedown actually of sort of corporate capitalism yes, it's, about, okay. it's about everyone from Albert Grossman to David Geffen yeah. to John Landau and it's it's a really it's a big, great big yeah, yeah. what's the new one but about? the new one is, is, is about rock movies it's his analysis of the best music films from oh. like Don't Look Back to This Is Spinal Tap right and he's a very very good writer and he's coming on board Rock's Back Pages, is he which is very good news because there's quite a lot of stuff lurking around of him <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but we'll talk about this after the episode thanks for thanks. coming on if you want more Gary go and check out the Rock on Tours. <laughs> it's, yeah. really it's, yeah. really, it's really good it's really good really... and look out for Sourceful of Secrets um, performances coming this year coming soon yes great bye, bye. bye. that concludes episode 145 of the Rock's Back Pages podcast Many thanks to special guest Gary Kemp. Visit his website at garykemp.com and find the Rock on Tours podcast wherever you listen to this one. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. 
The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs> <laughs>